Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Um, look, good evening, everyone. Um, welcome to Sydney Ideas, to an event on digital rights and governance in Asia, the state of the arts. Um, I'm Jared Goggin from the Department of Media and Communications, and it's my really um, great pleasure to be the MC um, tonight, working with uh, Liz and Anna and the Sydney Ideas colleagues. So before we begin the proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. And as we share our knowledge, um, teaching and learning and research practices within the university, and as tonight we hear and deba debate and have a conversation on this crucial issue of digital rights, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. So tonight we are uh, incredibly fortunate to have five experts on this topic of digital rights and governance uh, in Asia. We have four visiting, uh, colleagues visiting um, with us, and we have one, one local. Um, so I'll just briefly introduce them. They'll each um, give some opening remarks, and then hopefully we'll have quite a lot of time for Q&A. Um, and so tonight, um, we have the Sydney Ideas handle, and we also are going, we should have that up here, um, this will be then podcast afterwards, so it's shareable. And we're also going live on Twitter um, at Periscope. So you can pick up for anyone who's not here. If you're uh, tweeting and sending it out, you can send out those details as well, either at Sydney Ideas or at Media at Sydney. Okay, so let me introduce in the order of uh, in which they're going to speak um, our terrific panellists tonight. So first up, we have Ang Peng Wah. Ang Panwar is professor at the Wee Kim Wee School of Communication and Information at Nanyang Technologi Techno Technology University in Singapore. Um, he's a very eminent scholar uh, in this area and he's the immediate past president among, of the International Communication uh, Association. His research interests lie in media and law and policy and he's consulted to various uh, governance, uh, governments. Um, there's much more to be said, and we have more of the buyers online. So welcome, Pengwa. It's a real pleasure to have you with us this evening. Um, so second, we have, I'll introduce Anita Gurthmurti. So Anita is a founding member and executive director of the NGO uh, IT for Change based in Bangalore, uh, India, where she res leads research collaborations and projects in relation to the internet society with a focus on governance, democracy, and uh, gender justice. Her work reflects a keen interest in southern frameworks and the political economy of internet governance and data and surveillance. Um, she is a leading thinker on these issues and very engaged internationally. So welcome, Anita. Um, then we have Malavika Jayaram. And Malavika is the inaugural executive director of Digital Asia Hub, which is a Hong Kong-based independent research think tank incubated by the Berkman Klein Center in Internet and Society at Harvard University, where she's also a fellow. A technology lawyer for over 15 years, she practiced law at Allen and Overy, London, and was Vice President and Technology Council at Citigroup. And so she 
has moved across domains of academia, of uh, law and corporate life, and on policy. Uh, and she, amongst other things, is a member of the high-level expert advisory group to the OECD project Going Digital. Uh, and another leading thinker in this area, we're incredibly lucky with our panel tonight. This builds on, I should have said, a research workshop we've been running today and will run tomorrow. So this is, this is the kind of incredible opportunity here. So um, next I'd like to introduce Romel Regalado Bagares. So Romel served for many years as the executive director uh, and has served for many years as the executive director of the Center for International Law in the Philippines. And that's an NGO engaged in strategic litigation, training and advocacy to promote the, law, the rule of law in the Philippines and Asia through binding international legal norms. With extensive experience litigating public interest cases, he's a listed expert for Southeast Asia of the Columbia University Global Free Expression Project and has defended pro bono many free expression cases on behalf of journalists, bloggers, and human rights defenders in the Asian region. So a very, another very significant figure currently undertaking incredibly important landmark cases. So welcome, Romel. So um, our fifth speaker uh, is our local. Uh, Dr. Aim Simpeng. And so Aim is a lecturer in the University of Sydney's Department of Government and International Relations. She's a member of our digital rights and governance team. Her research interests center on relationships between digital media, political participation, and political regimes in Southeast Asia. She's particularly interested in the role of social media in shaping state society relations and inducing political and social change. And Aim is a, has been a bit of a regular at Sydney Ideas, but she is very much a cutting edge thinker uh, and scholar on these issues. So without further ado, I'll let our panel, each of them speak. And then as I say, we'll try and keep as much time as we can for questions and, and answers and uh, engagement with yourselves as the audience. Benoit. Okay, sure. Okay, so uh, thank you, Gerard. Um, so um, glad to see you all. I'm glad to be here, of course, to be in uh, Sydney. A wonderful uh, city, one of my favorite cities, for sure. Um, so let me begin by uh, painting the backdrop uh, to set a context as to why rights are important uh, you know, in, this, in this context, um, talking about the digital environment and digital economy. I know for some of you it's, it's kind of obvious why rights are important, but in Asia we tend to see rights as um, not as important as kind of like what works. So I just had a uh, talking to people, thank you for nodding, <laughs> she's nodding already. Um, like, you know, okay, you look at, look at Singapore and things work, you know, then why, why do you raise issues about rights, you know? Like, why are you wasting time about this, you know? So I, I had this um, um, meeting where uh, they were talking about the, 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 the trade agreement for the digital economy, and I'll talk a bit more about that later. And they couldn't see the, the, the connection with rights. So I gave this uh, example. I don't know if any of you have a China phone. They are good and cheap, and I had one. Xiaomi, and I still have this fitness band. Okay, it's, um, it's about, I think about $30. And it's a smart band. If you pick up your phone, it unlocks the phone. Brilliant, right? I mean, you pick up the phone and your band will unlock the phone for you and you can just sort of use it. Um, I was told by many friends that I should use an Apple, the iPhone. I pay a heck of a lot more. If I lose it, it's going to be painful. Um, and this phone is, does the same thing as the, the Xiaomi fitness band, except that it looks at my face and then scan it and then unlocks the phone. So, you know, obviously you got to pay more for that, right? The Xiaomi data that I have on my phone goes back to China. All the Chinese phones, the data goes back to China. It's a requirement. Um, 
there is no there is no privacy right in this in this context for you. Um, you can't tell business not to do not to do things with the with the uh, the data. And in fact, in Singapore, the first batch of Xiaomi phones had spam coming through, and they were told to stop it or else. And we have our data protection law, and that stopped it. That is an example of how uh, rights affects business. So in this panel that was on, there was a guy from Huawei, a high-level president, I told him, vice president, I told him, I'm sorry, you know, but your, your um, country's laws actually is affecting your business. You're not giving rights to people to protect their data. And so many people who want to use your phone, will, once they know of this, they will not use your phone. And you could see that people sort of, okay, that's how this might work. Let me give an example of how rights work. <clears throat> we store data in clouds, uh, cloud security, right? I've again had some panels, and the biggest concern for companies uh, running these cloud services is not, I don't know if you noticed, it's not security. I was surprised. It is not security, it is privacy. It is protection of the data by some law. So the number one concern is privacy, the number two concern then is security. So in Singapore, we want this uh, data warehousing to come to Singapore, the cloud service, services to come to Singapore, and so we pass our data protection laws. This is another example of how your, your rights online affects business. When Edward Snowden's uh, revelations were made public, there were so-called um, anywhere but USA clauses. In other words, people wanted their information to flow, the big companies wanted information to flow anywhere in the world except the USA. Some estimates were that the U.S. lost in just a few months before the end of 2013, maybe six months, nine months maybe, lost, the U.S. companies lost uh, at least $100 million in business. Um, so you can see how rights uh, actually play a very important role now in our environment. Now, of course, Cambridge Analytica and so forth, you see this, yeah, I mean, kind of uh, clear, but I think it's people, it's just sort of becoming aware, people are being, becoming made aware of the importance of, of rights. Which leads to the second question of, how do we protect our rights? Uh, and that's where a lot of work is, uh, research going on as to how to do that. The model that uh, we are talking about uh, is the multi-stakeholder model. That's the model that we kind of sort of recommended. Um, I've been involved in some work um, in, this, in this space. The multi-stakeholder model is kind of obvious to, to most, if not all of us here in this room. We're talking, of course, governments will be there. Um, and then there's uh, business, of course. But also a group that's kind of troublesome, uh, civil society. Actually, actually, most of us belong, you know, in some sense or another, to civil society. It's kind of a loose grouping. There are issues with that. Um, who does civil society represent? Uh, who elected civil society? You know, we elect governments. They represent us. Uh, business kind of associations and federations. They represent their own businesses. But who do us as civil society, you know, represent? Right. So that's kind of tricky. But all of the work that's going on suggests that this is actually a very critical part of it. Um, we are seeing this uh, role of civil society in such areas as, you can think of this, right? Okay, we have uh, fake news, um, and you know how important that is to have uh, civil society playing, for example, fact-checking, right? Do you want government to fact-check, or would you prefer business, or an independent body? You can see how, you know, uh, having civil society in fact-checking raises the credibility of the fact-checking entity. Um, you can think of AI, the algorithms involved, they're run by private companies, and they're literally a black box. No one quite knows how these rules, what these rules are. Do you know how to make the rules? I'm involved inside a small startup doing some AI work to kind of understand how this AI works. And at the end of it, you get a result.
But the, the way that they make the sausage, as you would say, right? We don't really know how, how they work. You, we put in the meat, we get a sausage, and in between, we don't know what happens. It's a black box, right? So, but it's edible, it's edible, but you know, yeah, I know, it's kind of icky, right? Okay. Um, we have uh, Internet of Things. How do we know that our fridge will not be controlled by somebody who lowers the temperature, who raises the temperature up to 32 degrees, gets the food to go bad, and then turns it back to, to whatever, four degrees or whatever, and then we eat the food thinking it's cold, right? You must have seen this in some movie plot, right? That, you know, we, that's how you kill the bad guy, I mean, without sort of entering his room, right? Um, how do we know this will actually work? Um, and this is where we need some form of almost independent um, uh, group um, that, doesn't, that doesn't just act on, you know, profits, um, but has some higher ideals um, and sort of thinking of societal good, right? So, um, and I think that's where, it, if, you, if you think about it, uh, I think all of us think we are the good people, of us, obviously, right? Um, but if you think about it as a group, as a group, the rules and policies and guidance that we make um, would, would, because we check each other, would make better sense than just purely government or purely business. So I think that you can see how um, in this area of rights, uh, civil society, literally all of us in this room have a role to play in making the rules uh, better. I will just end on one more, no one more note, um, one more point. Um, we have uh, the, the, the process um, and we have um, uh, the rules, but these need to be constantly uh, checked and fine-tuned and so forth. So we need an ongoing process of engagement to ensure that when we have all these rules, knowing that the rights are important, knowing these uh, rules are important, that the processes are continually uh, reviewed and, you know, and updated. Um, and I think that's uh, an important step forward in understanding how rules are protected and made, but also in how our own rights are safeguarded. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Pingwa. I'd now like to invite Anita to give her presentation. So for those who've just come in, this is Anita Gorthmurti from uh, IT for Change. So what I thought I'd do is uh, lay out um, the larger context of where the discourses of digital rights, I think, comes from, and how these rights have actually been framed through certain important, uh, not necessarily um, non-overlapping, although consecutive kinds of turns, you know, turns, historical turns. Um, I'll also give examples of how certain local imaginaries of these rights are in the margins, and they keep continuously challenging the hegemony. The first thing I wanted to say is that we assume that rights are means of protection, so that rights defend us against other things. But actually, scholars have pointed out that rights are not neutral, and in fact, they are themselves a vehicle of domination and governance. Secondly, rights debates present key sites of contestation in the very project of establishing hegemony. So hegemony doesn't come only from the state or, let's say, powerful capitalist forces, but also from rights discourses. Thirdly, that digital rights debates are themselves reflective of political ideologies and normative visions, and they're not necessarily um, you know, reflective of a buy-in from uh, which is universal. So what I'll do is examine the global digital rights debate as ideologies in vogue or ideologies in practice, ask the question which ideologies are dominant and at what points in time are dominant ideologies furthered, 
How do they get destabilized by alternative articulations? And what are these rights imaginaries that arise at the margins? So I'm going to do this through three critical conjunctures. As I said, these three are con you know, somewhat chronological, but they are also overlapping. So the first I will talk about is the freedom turn, the second is the privacy turn, and the third is the algorithmic turn. <coughs> so the freedom turn. Well, I don't know if you've gone up to the internet and had a chance to look at it. I know a lot of us actually have gone and seen Donna Haraway's The Cyborg Manifesto, but about the wonder years. And I think it's worthwhile noting how John Perry uh, Barrow ha had this imagination that there is absolutely no materiality online. And, you know, if we uh, look at what uh, Penghua just said about how the internet is material, how it's completely rooted and it can even uh, completely manipulate us, we understand how grounded it is. So the idea was that we are creating a world where anyone anywhere may, may express anything and normally ideologies are reserved for the material world and there is no matter here. And this feeds into, very conveniently, into what has been pointed out in the literature as a Californian ideology, the coming together of the yuppies and the hippies the tech-utopic tech people who were hackers, who were nerds, and the whole idea in San Francisco that, you know, if you can only build a startup, then you will be rich. So uh, in some sense, it was this kind of a confluence of uh, what seemed to be two unlikely poles, but they came together. Then, of course, uh, somewhere in 29, 2009, Hillary Clinton discovered internet freedoms, and then the world discovered the internet, uh, that the internet can actually free you. But noteworthy in this is the whole idea of the uneasy confluences. Please note that <clears throat> not only did internet freedom become a very important foreign policy issue for the US, in, tw in 2010, uh, Clinton set up what was called Civil Society 2.0, a venture that would feed in money in order to prop up cyber di dissidents in the global south. Um, so the whole idea of failed states and democratic states being the global south and the north, uh, respectively, and of course France and Netherlands and other countries were also supporting cyber dissidents. The most noteworthy thing, of course, if people remember Google's initial byline, which they dumped somewhere along the way, Google said that we should be very strict on certain countries so that if they did indulged in internet censorship, then it should actually be reason for acting as trade barriers. So this was, I mean, although it seems completely out of a horror movie, it was actually being discussed in the US. The third thing that happened in the freedom turn was that um, people pointed out that when you actually, in t between 2008 and 2014, Hossein Derkashan, who was actually uh, an Iranian-Canadian blogger, he was in jail between in Tehran between 2008 and 2014. When he went in, there was a particular internet where he was a blogger, and it was not all determined by social media. It was a different internet. When he came out in 2014, he noticed that the internet had completely changed. And from the openness and searchability that was so classical of the internet in 2008, what you actually had were platforms. So you 
really, you know, what everyone wanted was social media. So you really wanted a shot each time. You wanted actually to go behind something that was spontaneous and something that was new, something that was popular. So news and views were becoming very, very fleeting. Now in the freedom turn, I want to actually talk to three narratives, democracy, economic justice, and women's empowerment. So the dominant problematic I presented was the internet was see being seen as a harbinger of civic political liberties. But the alternative imaginaries coming from the global south have always told us that the economic, social, and civil political rights are but you know, two sides of the same coin. In fact, the Egyptian uprising was because for 10 years after Mubarak, there was impoverishment, there was unemployment, there was landlessness and insecurity, and it was impossible to say whether it was actually a civic struggle or a socioeconomic struggle. So that's very important, but nobody ever talks about that. In terms of economic justice, it was very clear during the freedom turn that the open internet was being heralded as something that will automatically bring an opportunity. But of course, from the global south, people have pointed at how the internet has to be seen as a public good which has to be provisioned. Otherwise, the poor people are never going to be able to buy internet in the market. Similarly, in women's empowerment, you've actually been um, during the freedom years and through Hillary Clinton's interventions and the cultivation of people like Malala, it was very clear that you know women can speak up on the internet, but many times when women did speak up, Facebook would put that down by saying this is against their community standards and they could actually, for instance, a Syrian woman went up without her wheel and said that I stand with the Arab women and Facebook closed down that page saying it, was, it violated community standards. So the privacy turn. Very self-evident, epoch-defining, it's a Snowden moment. But very importantly, the whole notion of privacy as a libertarian right, all about personal data, and everything that you can do to own your data. So that's been the dominant kind of paradigm. And I want to point out that the privacy turn, there are three, again, three narratives of democracy, economic justice, and women's empowerment. The most important challenge during the privacy turn was a very, very big hogwash that was conducted by the US soon after Snowden. In 2013, Dilma Rousseff went up in the UN and said that they are going to move the General Assembly for a civilian multi a multilateral uh, treaty which would look at um, internet governance. So the US panicked. And then there was, of course, uh, the Snowden revolution. So it started connecting two unrelated debates. And so it said, now we are going to democratize the root server ownership. So we will do the IANA stewardship transition and completely ignore the fact that the world was pointing fingers at it. So the marginal perspective of give us democracy, give us uh, um, you know, a democratic arrangement to govern the internet was completely ignored. And in terms of economic justice, the privacy turn brought in the market model of connectivity, established it firmly, although the global south, many countries were calling for internet intermediary regulation. Similarly, in women's empowerment, lots of and lots and lots of money spent, especially in the Arab world, on training women to know how to manage their own security. Whereas, I mean, for the longest time, the feminist movements have been telling us that access to a resource is not empowerment. It's important to address structural power. And the last, which is the algorithmic turn, this, of course, I think is a very famous picture of uh, the Rohingyas. Um, I mean, this is an anxiety everybody shares around the world. 
um, the global north and global south. Recently, Ethan uh, Zuckerman and uh, and uh, Benkler had done this very very thought provocative. Uh, thought-provoking piece, which was on, can we have a Facebook that is supported by taxpayer money? Uh, and I think that's something that's just not a dominant discourse. But to say that everybody has talked about how algorithmic decision-making does discriminate, because states are using this to pry. However, this does not necessarily talk about a very, very important thing, which the strategic silences in the world of algorithms in terms of economic sovereignty. Everyone wants to talk about the political debates around algorithms, but very few people want to talk about what will developing countries do about the fact that the northern countries and their companies are taking away the data of the people and of the nations, of the soil and the mountains and everywhere, everything else. People don't talk about the fact that South Korea told Google that they will not share their geospatial data. This was in 2002, correct me if I'm wrong, long, long back ago, but the dominant policy discourses will never tell you this. So in a recent UNCTAD workshop that Africans um, attended in Sri Lanka, they actually said that we don't want to be, these were African diplomats, and they said, we don't want to be stuck yet again on the low end and the dependent end of the global supply chain. So the fact that data is a very, very important economic resource, that's never spoken about in the algorithmic turn. So again, the three narratives of democracy, economic justice, and women's empowerment, the dominant problematic being the hyper-individualization within the political context, but the silences around what about an international treaty on data? Who will watch the watchman? Economic justice, you know, there is a platformization and there is this, you know, hype that if only you can become a startup, you know, you will have completely made it. But nobody talks about the right to data as a right to development. Similarly, recently at um, uh, Argentina and Buenos Aires in December 2017, feminist organizations shouted down all the countries which had said that e-commerce is going to be very, very important for the marginal and small women entrepreneurs of the global south. And the reasons why feminists actually booed them down was they recognized that this, this was a red herring. And they called it pink washing. They said, come on, don't distract the issue. Data is a different issue. And E-commerce and digital trade are different issues from trade. Let us sort out all the older issues in trade before you come to redeem us. <laughs> so this is my last slide. So broadly, my first slide was about how the digital rights discourse itself is a vehicle of domination. And just like the human rights discourse has also been pointed out to be. So this is largely been Northern-centric broadly libertarian situated within contemporary capitalism. And I am very tempted to invoke Gramsci here, how ideas become commonsensical and are perpetuated consensually. So we are all party to it. I mean, the class society cannot be perpetuated without the consensus of the masses. And the very, very important thing that he said, which is the key role of civil society in shaping mass cognition. So I'm not saying this, this is what he said. So I feel that even the alternatives that are coming about the critique of digital rights from the global north, they point to a larger libertarian cultural environmentalism, you know, where they don't want the state and they don't want the market. But the fact of the matter is that for digital egalitarianism, 
in the global south, for instance, right to food, right to health, right to education, these are all new generation rights which people in the global south have contested, they have defined these rights, they've given it fle flesh and blood, and they have fought for the right to information. And all of these rights have been articulated through struggles. So also digital rights, and if digital egalitarianism cannot actually be defined through such works in progress, through struggles, and if they're just going to be given to you like those three turns, then it just cannot work for the entire world. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Anita. So now we have Malavika Jayaram from Digital Asia Hub. Hi, I'm really, really happy to be here. Um, I was very surprised that we actually managed to pull off an entire day speaking about these issues without Foucault coming up, so it was a Foucault-free zone. Well done. And it also took about 20 people doing introductions this morning before someone mentioned the, dread the dreaded cyber word which I think again shows us we're in 2018. We don't even talk about cyber anymore. It's all AI, the internet of other people's things, the internet of shit falls apart. Um, but I'm also really happy to be here because the fact that you can even have a festival of ideas is something that a lot of our countries in Asia can't. So the fact that you can speak, that you have a right to be heard, that ideas can be exchanged, that they can be reported on without repercussion, that you can assemble, that's a privilege that a lot of our countries don't have. So I'm very grateful that you do and that we're all doing our bit to perpetuate those kinds of systems and livelihoods. Um, I don't have slides, even though I've got a lot of colorful word pictures to print, because I think power corrupts, PowerPoint corrupts absolutely. Keynote doesn't work. Um, yeah. So, so I have five sort of artistic provocations, because as every, you know, all of you know, as people who were in a law school, you really want to be doing something else. So I was a frustrated architect and artist, so I still keep looking at art as a very interesting entry point into things before law and policy catch up. They're visceral, they're instinctive, they're really wonderful ways to make people see things that aren't articulated through legislation and policy. Um, so one example I wanted to mention, it's not really an artwork, but you know the keep calm meme. You know, the keep calm and carry on, keep calm and call Batman, keep calm and use the Oxford comma, whatever your favorite pet peeve is. Um, some of you may have seen that some time ago on Amazon, there were t-shirts being sold uh, that said keep calm and hit her, keep calm and rape a lot, keep calm and beat her to a pulp. Any idea why that happened? So it was because algorithms were deciding what the next word should be in the keep calm trajectory based on what was trending. So in all of the work around sexual harassment, around people articulating rights, there was a lot of stuff about people being raped, people being hit, people being harassed. The algorithm, which this is a classic case of context collapse, the algorithm thinks, cool, this is trending, everyone's really interested, I'll give them more of this. T-shirts with these things printed, hundreds of complaints. So this was sort of one provocation of what happens when you don't have a human in the loop, looking at things before t-shirts get sold. Second one is an art project by one of my favorite artists called Manuel Beltran. Um, and the couple, couple of these works were shown by, at the Glassroom, which Mozilla funded. Um, and he's created this wonderful half parody, half real thing called the Institute for Human Obsolescence. 
which looks at all kinds of interesting things, but one of the things it examines is the production of data as a form of labor. So, there are a lot, you know, in, in, an, in a world of artificial intelligence, automation, displacement, there's a lot of talk about the universal basic income as one of the remedies for when every piece of work, every task is automated and the only things left to do are watch football, eat chips, and you know, write poetry. Um, but this was actually saying, well, I, the production of data is fueling the digital economy, and therefore we should all be paid for the data that we generate. It should be seen as a productive activity, so we should all get a data basic income. So it's a great provocation, but also something that he's really working on. The third thing, I, which is actually my favorite, is something Surya Matu created, which was a project, it's called Unfit Bits. And this is great for the future of workplace surveillance or any other kind of surveillance by the devices that allegedly help you, you know, nudge you towards better health, um, which you started with. Um, so this is called Unfit Bits. And what I love, it's so subversive, but it's so simple. And it's sort of saying, free your data from your lifestyle. Have fantastic data no matter what you actually do. Sit and watch TV, watch footy, do whatever you like. But there's a metronome that's spinning your little Fitbit. How many, you know, how many minutes do you want? How many steps would you like to have walked today? No problem, we'll set it for that. And I found that that, that was just fantastic because it was sort of recognizing a future where employers are motivated towards it for insurance reasons. Insurance brokers want you to have fantastic, perfect data to, you know, in, to say you're worth insuring and that you're not going to be a liability. And this is a great way of saying, you know what? Screw this pejorative way of saying I need to be healthy. I don't want to be healthy. I have agency. I have a right to be fat. But my, you know, my, my devices can tell a very different story. And I think underpinning this, which I really love, is we, we talk a lot about empirical systems, but we also talk about this very cute, glib way of talking about, oh, let's tell stories about harm. Let's have harm stories about privacy. Let's have harm stories about indigenous rights being violated or you know, about gender violence. There's something very cute about turning these things into stories, but that's why I love the idea that data can tell any story that you want it to. What is real, and in a world of, you know, I don't like the term fake news, um, but in a world of misinformation propaganda, uh, I find this act of subversion a really important one. Uh, the other thing I love is something that one of my favorite law professors and philosophers, Helen Nissenbaum, and her PhD students created, which is called Ad Nauseam. So it's sort of, it's a browser plugin, and it's sort of a way of pushing back against this constant ubiquitous tracking online, which we all want in some way, because you want things to be personalized. You don't want to be shown ads for things you dislike or uninterested in. But this is a way of sort of fooling the sensors and the trackers. So I might look for coffee. It might actually look for sake, shoes, ointment for athlete's foot, pregnancy kits, like 17 other things that have nothing to do with the thing you looked for. So you can have privacy by blocking and shutting down and using Tor. You can also have privacy through obfuscation and too much data. So it's this sort of very subversive idea of saying, if, it, if you think it's a losing battle, that you can't actually hold it back, you can't put the genie back in the bottle, privacy is anachronistic, nobody cares, kids don't use it, really, why are they on Snapchat then? Why do they leave Facebook when their parents get on? Right? But that's a different discourse. Uh, but I, I love the fact that this is a way of saying, 
you can still put data out there and function the way you normally would without changing your behavior, yet there's something in the background that's mimicking and mirroring what you're doing so that for someone watching, it's really hard to say what's real and what's the junk. So in, instead of making the needle really sharp, you've just grown the size of the haystack and made the noise component uh, such that everything is really fuzzy. Um, so these were just sort of some of the stories and the ways in which I think we can actually play. I think you know the, the resistance, the revolution, it will not just be televised, it will be live streamed, it will be periscoped, uh, it will be tweeted sometimes in the middle of the night after watching Fox News. Um, but I think it, all of these sort of come to a few really interesting points for me. One is plugging these into narratives that can be mainstream, that are accessible, that come out of the echo chamber and filter bubble of academia, of law and policy, uh, because they affect everyone. Um, to transcend language, to transcend culture. Um, I also think a lot of these come up against the idea that surveillance is the business model of the internet. Uh, and one of the questions I keep getting asked, which sounds simple, but it's actually one of the most complicated questions of our times, which is, what are the alternatives? If you don't have Facebook, what is the substitute for giving you all the good things that Facebook gives you minus the crap, right? What is the alternative to tracking? Are you willing to pay for news? Are you willing to pay for mail? Um, so we really need to examine different business models. And they don't necessarily need to be capitalist, ownership-driven uh, things, because that gets you into the sort of privacy is a luxury space, privacy is a privileged space, which I'm really allergic to. And I'd said today that I take a lot of lessons personally from the environmental movement. Instead of thinking of data as an asset, currency, gold, oil, whatever, bacon, um, I like to think of it as toxic, as kryptonite, as an externality, as asbestos that should be removed, that has a half-life, that once you do, it's not relevant anymore, you take it out, that fades, that is radioactive, uh, and that has implications because I think thinking of it as an ecosystem of harm not just something that's an individually negotiated privilege. I think that's really important. Use memes, use humor, net neutrality. You need a John Oliver moment. That's when everyone cares. Um, and I think I'll end by just saying that a lot of it is around paternalism. Yes, there's digital colonialism on some level, but it's also our own countries are doing it. And I think in Asia, something that really strikes me is it's not other countries doing it to us, we're doing it to our own people. Um, and I remember last time I was here in Sydney, I was talking to George Williams at the other law school, um, and I was telling him how, we're, for me, one of the very moving things in the fight against ID cards, my country got its independence because Gandhi, the barrister, regular bog-standard lawyer, became Gandhi the activist and the freedom fighter by fighting against ID cards in South Africa. The act of burning the ID card, the past that he was required to carry as a foreigner, was the thing that drove him to be an activist. It was his first act, it was the first struggle that led to the independence movement. Um, except now we're sort of saying, we're post Gandhi, we're post all of those things, and we're inflicting ID cards in our own population, but that's okay because it's not a foreign colonial power doing it. Um, and when I was talking to George, I was saying how Gandhi's killer is actually being reified and valorized and statues are being put up while Gandhi is being diminished. And he said, my God, we've just put up a statue to Gandhi at the UNSW Law School and you're telling me you're smashing the statues in India? 
Um, so I think it's really important for us to go back to our roots, to think of where our struggles come from and how we end up replicating them in different models, in different containers, and by different people, yet they're the same issues. Um, so just a few thoughts to share with you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Malavika. So now we have Romel Regalado Bagares, who's going to be the fourth speaker, and with one to come. Thanks, Romel. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's actually my first time to be in Sydney. Um, maybe uh, my colleagues earlier spoke about the, the broader picture, the, the, the framework in which we are to see um, how digital, the notion of digital, um, digital rights intersect with a lot of um, um, spheres in our lives. Um, my talk would be more focused, maybe you can consider this as a case study of how uh, the talk about digital rights um, really uh, is part of a bigger picture about uh, how the, an enter scaffolding, maybe an ecosystem of, uh, of rights uh, are being dismantled as we speak right now. Uh, I come from the Philippines. Um, when I was uh, at the airport at the check-in counter, I was held up for 30 minutes. Uh, I was surprised uh, to know that uh, my passport number was used by someone else in 2016. And that was my first time to hear, to hear it. Um, uh, so they called the Home Affairs office here in Sydney to check if uh, you know, my uh, visa had the pro proper bona fides. And finally, they let me go. But I was uh, shocked. Uh, because I've, of course, traveled out abroad uh, from 2016, but it's the first time that I was told that someone else had used my passport. And then two days ago, I was informed by Facebook, I like to think I'm important, so Facebook told me that uh, my data was among those uh, shared, my personal data was among those shared uh, by Facebook through Cambridge, um, Cambridge Analytica. Uh, and I did not actually log into that uh, quiz app, but it was because some of my friends did, and as a result of which, my data was also um, stuck into the whole system. And, uh, and the connection there is, is that uh, the parent company of uh, Cambridge Analytica had been in, has been in the Philippines since 2013, apparently uh, consulting with a lot of uh, political parties. And in fact, uh, two days ago also, there was this picture published on the South China Morning Post, uh, this picture of uh, Mr. Nix, Alexander Nix, one of the key figures behind uh, SCL Cambridge Analytica, sitting down with the campaign team of uh, President Duterte in 2016. Um, so you see how uh, uh, the digital could be really very personal. Um, I come, uh, I'm part of an organization that, uh, other than working in digital rights, uh, has been at the forefront of uh, the legal fight against the drug war of the president. We filed the first legal challenge um, against uh, the drug war, the Tokhang, Tokhang policy of uh, President Duterte, it's not easy. It's not easy until now. Uh, but uh, there's a connection there uh, with social media. You can see the Cambridge Analytica, SEL. Uh, if the story is to be believed, apparently, uh, that's how he won. Because really, we are a social media consuming nation. We probably spend 25 hours a day on social media as, as a people, plus the fact that 10% of Filipinos work abroad. So you have uh, natural um, constituents for uh, social media because that's how people get connected. 100 million, 10% abroad, uh, it's easy to figure how best to connect without paying anything. You, of course, you go to Facebook. 
and Facebook played a lot of uh, a big role in, in the elections. Uh, I had friends from 20 years ago, uh, people I, that I had been friends with since 20 years ago. I thought I knew them very well, and then 2000, the 2016 elections came, and I don't know them anymore. So there's, there's this rupture, there's this, um, uh, in law school we were taught, you know, the, from an American case in, in 1920s, Whitney versus California, that the remedy to bad speech is more good speech. That there's this superstructure that we have to maintain. That there's this marketplace of ideas and all that we need to do is to get people to talk and talk and talk and, until they arrive at the truth. But of course, the problem is that today people have different ideas of what truth is. Nobody thinks anymore about a common, a common uh, reference point for truth. Um, and I, I see that happening in my newsfeed. Um, that's probably why I, my personal data was sucked into Cambridge Analytica, because I have friends who took that quiz, they were profiled, and they were identified as a perfect target for political advertising. When the drug war erupted, of course, um, I used to be a journalist myself. I was a journalist for, te for, ten year for eight years um, before I decided to jump ship and join the dark side and become a lawyer. Um, not too many, not too, too many of my friends were happy with that, so I compensated by actually defending them in libel cases for free, um, just to pay for my to atone for my sins. Um, but you know, suddenly, the this big monolith you call traditional mainstream media, very powerful, it all came down in pieces with Facebook, because everybody else was saying this is a biased account of what's happening. And uh, there's, I'm very sure, of course, uh, you've probably read a lot of these stories about uh, farms, troll farms that are hired by politicians to spread misinformation. Um, as I speak right now, there's a debate about passing news, uh, uh, passing a law for fake news, but that's been, that has been at, at, uh, at the agenda of the government. Uh, the people, the social media influencers who were part of the movement to get our president elected, uh, are now in, in power and they've joined the government to continue the misinformation. And uh, ironically, they are a part of an office called Presidential Communications uh, Office, Presidential Office for Communications. Um, so the first few months, I, we spoke with journalists. They were being attacked on social media. Sometimes the, the, the threats uh, are really terrible. Uh, we, we tried to imagine uh, legal ways in which um, we can um, address this, but uh, most of them demurred, most of them refused. Uh, they said maybe uh, this is part of the job. Uh, but the, the, the fractures in society that's been there for a long time, we, we were totally wrong about uh, this idea that um, after Marcos in 1986, um, we have these freedoms that are sure, that are secure, that are not questioned. Uh, but then, uh, you know, after 86, all these promises, the false pretenses of liberal democratic governance just uh, exploded in flames. Uh, and uh, what you have here is a revolution of right, rising frustrations. Uh, before, in communication school at uni, when I was taking undergrad, we were told about the revolution in rising ex expectations. Now, it's, it's the frustrations that will drive people. And uh, that's also the same uh, frustration that's, uh, that, in social that keeps uh, this discourse in social media about rights in a very stilted manner. So 
So you have uh, this connection between politics. You also have uh, examples today, uh, what we lawyers call the great case, that's a hard case, that make for bad law. I think that's a quote from uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes. Uh, we're more familiar with American jurisprudence. Um, an example of how bad it is is uh, we have a, a, an online platform. It's an online news media called Rappler. Um, in our constitution, it's, called, it's been called the universalist constitution, the freedom constitution. Now it's being torn apart. Probably by the end of the year, we will not have it because the Congress is going to amend it so that we will shift from a unit system to a parliamentary system. And probably they're going to dismantle also the, the entire superstructure of uh, what we knew to be the last bastion of freedom in, in the Philippines, which is our Supreme Court. Um, Rappler, unfortunately, uh, had legal problems. We had in the Constitution, we have a provision there that says that mass media has to be 100% Filipino-owned. Now, of course, it needed uh, investments. The problem was it structured this investment uh, in a way that showed um, that, in fact, uh, what, is what, is, what looks like economic ownership is actually full ownership, what we know as uh, de depository receipts. Uh, it's, it's a notion probably more uh, familiar to commercial lawyers. Um, so we call it Philippine depository receipts. They buy some of the shares. Supposedly they have economic rights, but what happened was that in the way they structured it, it appears like they had voting, uh, they, they had uh, voting rights as well because they can prevent the restructuring of the corporation. And that was used by the government as an excuse to stifle um, uh, what it's doing because it's been known as a, as, as a uh, critic of the government. So, now the, a hard case that makes for bad law is, you know, an extreme case that cannot make good precedent. But that's what's being uh, made out of the Rappler. It's actually meant as a message that if you keep on, at least for many of us, if you keep on uh, criticizing the government, you will end up like this. You could get your uh, registration with us, our, our Securities and Exchange Commission canceled, or worse. So, so what we have now basically is the, this dismantling of this idea uh, and it was ironically propelled by, uh, by a medium that many of us celebrated 10 years ago. It's going to be a medium of freedom, a, a medium of communication, but how, what happened was it's becoming a, it has become a medium that's leading, that has led to fragment, societal fragmentation. And I don't know if our assumptions about democracy will still hold. I was having a discussion with a Korean colleague earlier, and I said, that's Whitley versus California in the 1920s. There's the presumption of rationality in communication. Actually, it goes all the way back to, to the Gorgias uh, dialogues of Plato, you know, the possibility of rational communication. Um, but today, is rational communication still possible when people have, believe uh, in different versions of truth? And uh, that all involves the notion of digital rights. Do we really have digital rights? Or are the notion of rights also socially constructed? And I would like to end on that note. Thanks very much, Romel. Okay, so now our final speaker, Aimson Ping. I'll just quickly end with two final comments. I really want to pick up Malaviga's point about um, us actually taking some of the blame for what's going on today. So the first is about um, a recent study <clears throat> by Stanford and Cornell professors about how normal people become trolls. 
right? Um, many of you have read this. Basically, the strongest predictor of an antisocial online behavior or trolling is actually just one person putting in an aggressive comment that actually leads to more and more people doing so in a spiral of negativity. So it just needs one cranky person throws off the entire conversation online and actually uh, suggesting to uh, otherwise quite normal and nice people to actually join in. Um, under the assumption that, of course, your comments are in some ways anonymous, even though they're not. So we can actually all you know, become trolls. And second is the issue of digital literacy. This is the issue I'm most concerned about in the region that I work in, which is Southeast Asia. Um, um, I've done um, uh, a, uh, a number of uh, surveys in uh, three separate countries now in Southeast Asia where it suggests that the people with the lower socioeconomic backgrounds um, actually trust information on Facebook more and um, are actually less inclined to uh, be critical about what they read. So the, 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 the most recent example, and I work here with my colleague uh, Francesco here on the Philippines election, uh, was actually the, 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 the people who were less educated, you know, younger sort of on Facebook, who absolutely love Duterte, don't question information they read on Facebook. And this is scary for uh, a very uh, good reason in Southeast Asia. Uh, there is a free version of Facebook in Southeast Asia where it actually doesn't cost data. In 2015, um, Mark Zuckerberg decided to roll out what he called uh, free, Facebook free basics data, which is like Facebook zero, uh, where he partners with um, local telecom companies in 69 countries, they got kicked out of India, um, and said, look, we'll offer a limited version of free uh, Facebook. Um, so, you know, you don't charge data, but these are likely going to be your future customers one day, right? So actually, for millions of Southeast Asians, this is the internet. They don't know what the other internet is, right? This is their first entry into um, cyberspace. Sorry for using the word cyber. Um, I feel so outdated. Um, so like, what is internet in Myanmar? You mean Facebook, right? So the problem with the Facebook free version is, is limited its functionality and you can't verify information because you got to shake. If, if let's say you read on the, on the headline on your newsfeed, China invades Vietnam, right? We're like, oh, is it? Can we verify this on another news site? But to, in order to do that, you have to go on the internet and that costs money. And so, and in fact, so these kind, of, these kind of programs really target people in a lower socioeconomic backgrounds, right? Who couldn't have before this afford to be online. And there are, from my study, less likely to verify the information to begin with, right? So perhaps some of this, you know, is contributing to the spread of misinformation and all this other stuff. But it's, I'm really concerned about the fact that, you know, we're offering you know, of course, Mark Zuckerberg said, it's better to have internet than not have internet, right? But, and he's got a point, he's acknowledges. I'd rather give you internet, decide what you do with it, than not, right? What are the consequences of that? The social, economic, political consequences of gaining free access to internet? 
right? Um, so this, these are the two things I think as us people, we can really start to question, you know, how did we get here today? Thanks very much, Amy. Okay, we're now going to uh, hear some questions and uh, comments from yourself. So I'm going to move over to the lectern and take it from there so I can distribute the mics. Who'd like to start the bidding? Sure. And Liz will just wait until Liz uh, runs it. Thanks, Liz. Uh, thank you very much for your talk. Um, there's sort of lots of topics going on here, but um, one of the things with digital rights uh, and privacy is it's very hard to get traction. I think many of you sort of alluded to that, that getting that traction is very, very difficult. Um, but if we use our, or would have used our imagination with the technology that was available with, to Facebook and the APIs, we could have seen what happened was going to happen. Um, and if we use our imaginations today, and for example, we imagine our eight-year-old child, their data being harvested for educational purposes by a US company, um, how that data could be used in 10, 20, 30 years time by that US company to um, what, uh, you know, to, manu uh, to mentally manipulate and target that eight-year-old child who you could probably predict what they're gonna be in 10, 20, 30 years time with algorithms. What sort of danger is that of us not being able to see those dangers for our future generations. Thank you very much. Would any of the panel like to respond? I don't Good think one. I have all the answers, but uh, let me talk a bit about the traction part of it. Um, so I teach a course in media law um, and uh, in ethics, and I have this uh, module on um, privacy. And in the past, I would ask people, okay, so uh, what have you lost when you lose privacy? And then typically there's like silence and you know, like, you know, nothing, you know, they don't say that, but like, hey, have you lost nothing? Then I say, okay, what if you have a credit card statement and somebody sees that and nothing else, they don't take a copy, they just see it, you know, do you feel anything about that? And then, yeah, people say, yeah, you know, I'd want my friends to know, you know. But some people still see it and nothing, I mean, yeah, they see my credit card bill, I don't buy anything, in Singapore nothing's obscene at all to be sold anyway, so nothing obscene, no, there's no pornography or whatever, you know, nothing. But more recently, when I ask them, we can see that there's a greater awareness about privacy. Uh, so people are, little, are becoming a little more uh, conscious. And in fact, the most recent one, the, the, uh, the entire class was like, okay, yeah, my privacy is important to me. Just like the entire class. So this is, you know, uh, and they are from like, you know, China, Vietnam, Russia, I mean, not Russia, sorry. Yeah, India, <laughs> I don't know why I said Russia, my mistake. Okay, um, so people are becoming more, more uh, aware. But I want to add also, and I made this point earlier, that um, there is a distinction between privacy in terms of the kind of privacy that's protected by the law and a privacy that some of us think of like uh, you know, physical distance or like secrets, sort of thing. Um, and the law can only protect the personal data, personally identifiable information, but not secrets. Uh, so there's only to a certain extent that you can uh, protect uh, you know, secrets. And the young people seem to be much more interested in the kind of personal data that can be legally protected. Um, and my own sort of hypothesis of this is that young people don't know how to fend themselves off. They don't know how to prevent somebody like, you know, uh, spamming them or emailing them or um, uh, texting, texting to them. The older folks can brush them off, you know. 
but the older folks have got secrets, and that's what they don't want people to know. So that's kind of interesting how uh, this plays out. And I think that the secrets uh, view of privacy is kind of becoming bigger in the sense that uh, more and more areas are being uh, uh, sort of treated as personal data in the sense that if you match them together, you can identify you. The main, the main thing about being per, uh, personally identifiable information is if they can use it to identify you. And if you match enough data, things can, can, can happen. It can match you with you know, somebody walking in this place at this time, and it can identify you through, through various uh, matching mechanisms. Uh, so the, the, the law, I think, will expand and, and cover more and more such areas. Yeah. But actually, exactly how to get more traction. Yeah. Uh, Anita's just going to have a go at the question too. To the same, is it okay? If you okay. wish, yeah. Yeah, all right. Yeah. So um, I think that the, the kind of appreciation that the current generation may have, and this is not to dismiss uh, the way people think about their private selves, um, I think that needs to be teased out a bit. And I think academic institutions may be one venue to do it like you would do it with your class. Because the idea of privacy has actually been theorized uh, in realms and realms of work, including philosophical work. And I think going by, let's say, an, uh, Hannah Arendt's uh, ideas of a republican uh, society, uh, the whole idea of privacy is that that modicum or you need a, a room of your own, not so that you can hide from society, but because that room will allow you to you know, cultivate the opinions and views so that you can be a public actor. So that connection between privacy, that, that my, what I buy online shouldn't be visible to Twitter, I think is, is the most uh, liberal capitalist reductionism, which I think we should challenge our students to think about. Because even privacy, what's the value of privacy? And I, I just want to point, uh, since it's a, a university setting, to Priscilla Regan's uh, book. This goes back to, I think, 1994 or 95. And she talks about three values of privacy. The first is that it has a common value. That is an individual's interest in privacy is to some extent shared by other individuals in the community and society. The second, she says, it has a public value, which fortifies democratic political systems. And thirdly, she says, privacy has a collective value. And under this concept conception, privacy is thought to exhibit the characteristics of a collective good, which is unsuitable to be a market good. So I think when people say, oh my god, you know, today I bought this pink undergarment online and Facebook shouldn't know it. I mean, I, I don't think that people should be thinking of privacy only from the point of view of hiding. Thanks very much, Anita. Okay, we'll take more questions. Anyone has? Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Liz. I, I imagine that when Mark Zuckerberg started, he, he didn't imagine that his Facebook would be all over the world, uh, but it has certainly uh, been transported cross borders. With, with the rise of machine learning and artificial intelligence in China and the, the rise of Alibaba and some of the Chinese tech industry, uh, what do you see as some of the rights issues or, or privacy issues as, as China's capacity expands over its southern border and western border. Thank you. Malavika? I think one of the issues is around the scale of data collection. I think China has access to the kind of data that would be very hard to collect in a western 
democracy that has a data protection or privacy framework, um, which also, I think, makes it very hard for incumbents and startups in innovative industries to actually ever amass that kind of data privately that the state apparatus can. Uh, and I think that's one of the factors. I mean, I don't like the rhetoric of the arms race between the US and China, um, but I think that's what, it, if there is one, I think that's one of the drivers. Um, I think one of the others is when these kinds of systems are implemented in pursuit of real social problems and gaps and cracks, it's very hard to litigate or be activist against them. So for example, the social credit system, which to, ev to every Western audience seems like the sort of, you know, the dark side, the end of the spectrum, this is about as dystopian and black mirror as it can get. Which, never mind that that's itself a very biased framing of it, it's not that different from Experian or other credit rating systems elsewhere. Um, but I think one of the things about the social credit system uh, is the black box around how it's designed, that you don't quite know how the algorithm works, but it is one response to the fact that you have a country that doesn't have a credit rating system. This might be a very creepy way to enact a credit rating system, but it is a solution to a perceived problem. And until an alternative comes up that can fill that gap that's more rights-friendly, you will end up with these kinds of surveillance schemas that will then have to sort of get recalibrated as people push back against them. Um, it's the same way that in India with the Aadhaar system. Someone like me might think it's the most awful thing and I have no part with it, but then I'm not relying on state benefits. I'm not completely undocumented. I'm not living on the margins. I'm not below the poverty line. And I think that's a whole different narrative where only when you're beginning to show that it actually disaffects and demonizes and others, the very people it's supposed to help, that's what's going to make it shift because it's not the elites or the middle class that, it, that you know, it's really meant to solve for. Um, when you show that it's actually resulting in people dying because they didn't get food, because they weren't admitted to hospitals, which is happening now, then you can start looking at this was meant to solve X problem. Are there better ways to solve that problem? Thank you. Quick, uh, quick comment. Um, quick comment from the, the, the Chinese tend to see um, uh, resources that being critical to their country, livelihood, national development. Uh, so you have oil before, and now it's information and resources. Uh, information as resources. And even the internet domain names, I mean, not domain, the IP addresses were one time seen as uh, uh, resources because there was only 4 billion available and China wanted under the share, right? So in the same way, they're investing big time in AI, deep learning, and so forth. I, I agree with uh, uh, Malvika that they, um, I think that in the Chinese case, um, you, they need to come across issues before they kind of respond. Because, the th okay, this is theory, right? That the way to do uh, regulation of the internet space is to use a multi-stakeholder model because no one group has all the expertise. Um, so you need government, okay, fine, government sets the rules, but you also need business and you need a wider consultation of the civil uh, society. This is what is missing in China. Civil society tends to be weak in countries with censorship. This is across uh, the, the, the world. Even Israel apparently has a, weak sense, uh, has a weak civil society because of censorship. Singapore also, and then uh, China obviously. So this is the third component that is weak in China. Um, and so it will hurt China's um, you know, development in this space uh, going forward. But 
this, the, the issue of this is that China has developed you know, incredibly well. I was in Shanghai just in um, November. I don't know if you go there, you'd be amazed at the kind of stuff they do there. You can charge your phone um, in this cafe and pay like one yuan per half hour, something like that. And it's a micropayment. One yen is like a couple of cents you know, to charge your phone. You would do that, right? You would pay. And like, you know, it's, the payment system is incredible, right? But the privacy uh, questions, right? Uh, how to declare data and so forth, this is you know, not known to you. So there are some of these issues, but uh, I agree with Malavika. They don't see the problem yet, you see? You know what I mean? It has to hit you in the face. It's like I ask you, what do you lose when you lose privacy? And right now, China seems to say, well, maybe nothing. Okay. Uh, more questions? And comments? Yeah, please. Yeah. And then we have one down the back. Hi. Uh, first of all, thank you. Is it okay if I ask my question specifically directed to one of the panelists? Please do, yeah. All right, thank That's you. Helpful so, in a way too, actually. Yeah. Um, so hi, Malvika, right? I am also an Indian by birth, and I've lived in India for quite some time and be educated in India as well. So your last point about going back to our roots was something that particularly interested me, especially because of the example you gave. So now going back into the Indian education system, growing up, I was told that Gandhi, or like around the world in general, Gandhi is this father who did all these amazing things. And I'm not trying to pull him apart. I'm not trying to like taint anything that he did. But there's evidence in history that points that he was much more than all the good things that he did, just like any other human, right? So when we talk about education and when we talk about the right to have access to all this information, how do you see that panning into the education system? in a way where I found out about these negative aspects to this huge personality far later when I finished my education in India. So when I look back upon if I had this information while actually learning, would that have implemented or would that have affected the way I perceive the world? So how do you sort of think that this information or this access to information can be brought back into the education system right from the early stages? actually attempts to revise the textbooks right now uh, to pretend certain periods of history never happened, certain people never invaded us, certain things just didn't happen. So I think it's a very good time to actually be thinking about sources of information and multiplicity of sources of information. So I think we also, I think a lot of the fault is in the kinds of education systems we have where you learn by rote, where there is only one answer, you're not taught to think. Uh, you're not taught to actually, I mean, this is not really a digital rights issue, uh, but it's, it's also about you are expected to give a particular kind of answer that fits into this sort of trajectory, otherwise you fail. So I think that's changing, uh, but I think access to different sort of digital literacy as well, uh, being open to other opinions, like right now, the kind of troll farms are so strong that if you even try to even question something, it's framed in a sort of nationalist, unpatriotic, how dare you call truth to power. Uh, it's very hard to actually say something without being shouted down. And one of the things that I've found has grown is the rise of the heckler's veto, where one of the exceptions to your right to free speech is if it can cause a public order disturbance, if it's going to you know, be a problem for the space. People have learned really, really well how to actually 
provide enough of a provocation and a problem like, you know, we can't have Salman Rushdie come speak or we can't have X or Y, that they create the conditions where the speech is shut down. Uh, and I think we're seeing that with education, we're seeing it with what public intellectuals do we have anymore, who, how few of them are even allowed uh, to speak. So I think that's not so much a digital rights mm -hmm. issue, but happy to chat later about that. Thanks very much. So we had a question down the back, and then we might try and squeeze in two more questions. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, the, the growing importance of the digital rights in the recent times has paved the way for the, uh, the pivotal role of two major players or actors. One is the government, and the second is the corporation, whose role is for the government is to protect the rights and for the government is to respect the rights. Now my question is, what is the level of, of protection that is being shown by some of those countries in Asia at the moment? And how it is being communicated to the public or to the stakeholders? On side manners is that, what is also the degree of, of respect shown by this corporation transnational corporation as far as, you know, respecting the rights of, of the users. Thank you. Thank you. Does anyone take up, Roman? Um, maybe from the Philippine experience, we now have uh, our data privacy law. Um, but the funny thing is, uh, when it was being drafted, uh, the, the rationality was that it's, it's for the booming uh, BPO industry in the Philippines. Because it's, it's reached a point where it's now a major contributor to the Philippine economy. So, so we've uh, driven uh, business from India to the Philippines uh, from, through our BPOs. But if you look at the law as, as it came out, it's actually an exemption to BPOs. They don't get um, uh, prosecuted or they don't get regulated by, by the Philippines for the data that's transmitted, transported from other countries to the Philippines, say data collected by the BPOs in the Philippines, uh, in, in the US sent to the Philippines in the uh, American-linked or American-owned BPOs that are operating in the Philippines, they're exempted from the regulatory bodies, that, uh, the uh, uh, regulatory system that was set up by our data privacy law. And uh, it, it only dawned us recently that that's actually the case because the, our law was set up in 2009 it was only last year when our uh, National Privacy Commission really got uh, very, very active in uh, trying to implement that. Uh, but uh, there are also a lot of misgivings about how it's doing its, its job now. Um, but uh, that's an example of, uh, uh, you know, a kind of law that, uh, that caters actually to the demands of uh, transnational business. You have these big corporations now that account for something like maybe 20% of the Philippine economy, the, the BPOs, and they're not regulated by our data privacy law. Um, um, so um, that's an example. You know, there's this notion of uh, data portability in our law. So, and uh, I also work as a data privacy officer for a big NGO. And um, I, I just tell myself, uh, I tell the people that our, our, the people in our NGO, because we have like, 200,000 program members in its a microfinance organization. Uh, that this is one way of actually raising the consciousness of people. Uh, our, our program members are, you know, they're people who exist in the margins. Most of them are, have very little education. 
And I say, we're, we're told that uh, there are 12 rights of the data subject. And we have to educate our people, our clients, about these rights, you know? And uh, I found it uh, scary to think that data could be portable, you know, that you could will it. If you're dead, you, could, you still have a right to your data, and your family could inherit it. And it could be transferred from one person to another, from one form to another. Uh, these are the sorts of questions that, that, that we should be facing now. And that, that notion of uh, data as portable, of data as, uh, there was a prof uh, discussion earlier by Professor Graham Greenleaf, that it's stupid to think of data as property. But uh, that's the sort of thing that happens now with uh, all these models of, uh, you know, transnational uh, communication, the data that's, big data that's being uh, uh, gathered. In the Philippines, it's a big thing now. There's, there are new programs being offered on data analytics, big data. Uh, but no one's asking. Uh, Uber just merged with Grab. Nobody's asking what happens to the data that was gathered by, by Uber in the region. What's going to happen to that? Is it going to be transferred to Grab? Nobody's asking that. And even our National Privacy Commission tries to give the impression that things are okay, that they are monitoring it, but nobody's asking the right questions. Thank you. Okay, we've got time for one last question, I think, and then we'll just check. Anyone with a final Question? Comment? Okay, panel, did anyone have a final observation in Malavika? I just wanted to add to that question as well that I think as long as people in the developing economies are seen as objects of benevolence, as targets of development, and as recipients of aid, rather than as equal participants who can negotiate their own rights, uh, that's always going to be a problem. Uh, and I think there's a certain sort of schizophrenia in the way in which multinational companies handle the region. We're big markets. We have huge populations. We may have small amounts of money to spend, but when you add it all up, it's a very massive market that they can't afford to ignore. But in order to come in, they're willing to sort of bend over backwards to any kind of requirements around data localization, around, you know, you have to store the data here, you have to hand it over to the government, you must have a data center here that give us the public keys, you can't encrypt. All of these conditions that they'd never think of doing anywhere else, that they accept as a condition of doing business here. Up to a point, they say, oh no, we'll, you know, we'll have the moral high ground, we won't enter China, we won't enter blah, blah, repressive regime. But at some point, they cave to market economies and say, oh yeah, well, actually, we need to sort of get with the program. And so I find it really hilarious when they turn around and say, oh, we can't disclose this because of privacy. What, now you care about privacy? Uh, so I think that kind of thing is something we need to really call out and push back on. Okay. Um, just a yeah, quick uh, two points. Um, I've, because I'm from Singapore, people think that you know, I must represent the government in some form. And therefore, I want the, the internet to be censored, and I want government to be into the, into the internet. So when I say that uh, the internet needs to be regulated, people say, ah, yeah, you from Singapore, always, you know. <laughs> and then, and then um, one, there was one meeting, I remember, when somebody said, oh, yeah, we can need human rights on the internet. And I said, you know that it is the government that enforces human rights, right? <laughs> and therefore, you're actually, you're actually asking the government to be into the internet, you know. I, you know that, right? And you could tell, no, they didn't know that. So I think one of the issues is, you know, how do we see this space, right? So I, I see this as really you, you have to have the government involved in some way in, in the internet, in any space where there's sort of human interaction, right? At the very least to, to what we call uh, lubricate social friction, right, at the very minimum. Uh, the second thing, um, which kind of more directly answers the question uh, on the issue of government in um, well, the privacy space. In, in Malaysia and, and Singapore, 
the privacy laws do not protect you from the government. So I was a bit freaked out when I first saw, read this because I thought, hey, the privacy is supposed to protect you from government, like the EU, right? The following EU, right? So we should have laws that protect us from government. But it doesn't. What does it mean? Okay, so let me ask you this. You walk into a government office and they ask you to fill in a form. Suppose the form comes to you populated and all you do is sign on it because the government is able to pull information from different agencies. Would you like that? I asked the American audience, and I can tell half of them, like, hey, not a bad idea. And the other half, like, mm. <laughs> So think about it. Where do you stand? If you think of, hey, that's not a bad idea, then, you know, the government is right where you are in Singapore and Malaysia. Okay, thank you. Okay. One final I, point. And then a nature I'm sorry. Okay, Despite what we said, Facebook, or wherever you can find us a space where you can kind of fight back a little bit, you know, like, don't feel so defeated. Um, I'm from Thailand where we have a dictatorship right now. We have, um, so every now and then the government said, don't click like, you go to prison, and people have go to prison for what it did on, on social media. So I just spent the last few days reading, you know, like hundreds of comments um, about this meme that people created, like mocking some of the things the government did, and people are sort of, all they talk about was, Oh, I wish that I could say more, but we might go to prison. But so many of them say that, that this is a really, you know, subversive way of saying, oh, I wish, this is basically what they're doing, right? They're fighting back with a little way they can, right? They were not being specific. And I think that that's just so important at a time when you feel like you're just losing this battle. The government is, you know, taking more and more power over what your, the little rights you have online. So... Regardless of you know how much negativity is going on with you know stuff that's going on in social media, I still think it's an important place to push back at some of this because otherwise the government will continue to increase their repression online if you don't fight you know use that space to fight back. That might be a nice place to end, I think, on the fight back motif. So, um, can you join me in thanking the panel, a terrific panel tonight? Agreed. We really have been privileged. You can hear the podcast shortly afterwards. There's also the persistent video. We'll see how persistent it is also on Periscope. Can I thank Adele Webb, who's been the research associate on our project, for, for bringing our visitors and other, many other things together. Thank you very much, Adele. <laughs> um, thanks to Carl Moore, who's uh, staffed the Periscope, and thanks to the Sydney Ideas our team, and particularly thanks to yourself. Thanks very much for coming out this evening and engaging. We very much appreciate it. Enjoy your evening. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.